Hey, it's Agrita Dandrao, and you're listening to the Mindful of Everything podcast, which calls for revolutionary healing of the self and community that can allow us to outgrow cultures of scarcity and hyper-individualism so that we can move to more caring and regenerative ways of living and working in community. Today, we're joined by the beautiful Chesley Pierre-Paul. That's people who have so much material privilege. They can't afford not to talk about money seriously because for them, it's a non-issue. Again, are those the people that should be leading the conversation? So all those layers put together, they make it very obvious that without money that is managed and grown into wealth multi-generationally, we're just recreating the same cycles. Every time we have a bit more privilege, less unpacked, uh, but we never have financial freedom. And so money in the sense is a thing that creates stability enough in our projects, in our organizations, and all the work that we do, that the baseline of what we do isn't starting at the level of survivorship. Chesleen, or Chess, is a multi-award winning DEI expert, global thought leader, and owner of the Chesleen Incorporated, the most innovative, transformational, and low-cost DEI consulting firm and digital global edtech company in the world to help queer, BIPOC, Gen Z and millennial college and university dropouts live amazing six-figure lives and careers. Their mission is to help the most disenfranchised humans on earth go from generational debt and poverty to multi-generational wealth and healing, focusing specifically on how to thrive and not survive in a white man's world without selling out, giving up or settling. Welcome, Jess, to the show. Thank you so much for coming here. It's amazing to have you. Likewise, so glad to be here. Just to let the listeners know, I think I reached out to you a few months ago. And at that point, we both were not in a sort of space where we could connect and sort of engage in this conversation. So I think in this way, this episode is super, super special because now we both feel aligned and ready to engage in this beautiful area of decolonization work. And I think it's just so important. Mm -hmm. It's something that I've been wanting to explore a bit more about on the podcast, but I just hadn't sort of felt aligned to a guest who could actually share their wisdom to us about it. So I'm very, very happy to have you on. But before we do begin, and as we do with every single episode, I would love for us to just ground ourselves in this moment by just doing a few, like a breathing exercise and take a few deep breaths. I think it's just a really lovely way to just ground us in this moment and just progress in something that is so deep and so special, but it does require that vulnerability. Yeah. So if, if you feel ready, then we can, we can go ahead with that. Amazing. Yeah. Just to get ourselves ready in this, you know, in this moment and to share this moment together, I would love for us to just close our eyes very gently and just allow yourself to fall into the slowness of this moment, the calm that this moment is providing us today. As I'm guiding you through this exercise or this ritual, please just remember to take those deep breaths. Again, at your pace, whatever feels comfortable to you. So this this exercise is really simple. And what I like to do here is just focus on how the body is responding to this moment. 
and how we can allow our bodies to gradually slow down and just relax. Let's begin with our shoulders. So gently roll them back. Really allow that sort of movement and allow them to gradually fall down and reach a relaxed point. Again, just really feeling that movement, your shoulders going back and falling down. Again, now we're just going to move to the back. Allow yourself to sort of sit up straight gradually. Allow yourself to stretch and then gradually just fall into a very soft sort of position that your back is comfortable with. Something that's not too upright and not too slouched. Now let's move to the hands and your fingers, paying attention to them, allowing them to just relax. They may be tensed right now. You can place them on your legs or cup them together. Whatever feels comfortable, but just really allow the fingers to sort of relax. Now let's move to the legs. If you are sitting on a chair, or even if you're sitting cross-legged on whatever surface, feel your legs just slowly relaxing. If you're putting pressure on the balls of your feet, then really just allow the feet to, again, relax. Feel your legs relaxing right now. And hopefully now you are feeling like your body is much more relaxed than what it perhaps was before we began this exercise. And what relaxed and calm and slow means to you. Because it will mean different things to different people, different bodies. But whatever feels good is what is right for you. Keep taking those deep breaths in between. And we're going to gently place one of our hands either on our tummies or our heart. Really just connecting the body in this way and getting ready to take five deep breaths together. We have been taking deep breaths throughout, but just bringing the focus back on the breath. Take a deep breath in. And a deep breath out. Take a deep breath in. And a deep breath out. Take a deep breath 
in and a deep breath out. Deep breath in and a deep breath out. Final one, take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. Now in your own time, when you feel ready, you can gently open your eyes. Thank you so much for joining in with that, Jess. I hope you feel sort of grounded now. Yeah, yeah. I do. I needed that. <laughs> amazing, amazing. So, yeah, just to start the conversation off, I think it would be amazing if you could tell us a bit about how you began your journey into diversity, equity, and inclusion consultancy and how that sort of led you into the space of activism that you are in right now. Absolutely. So, um, you know, I was born and raised on um, Sidid, uh, Indigenous lands here in Canada, so-called Canada, and my parents are political refugees. So I grew up in a very political household from a young age, having that critical awareness of the systems that we live in embedded into my psyche from a very young age. And I credit my parents a lot for making that something that didn't necessarily register at the level of heaviness. Mm -hmm. Because as you may know, when you do this work or you have this keen awareness, you know, there's a lot of exhaustion or compassion or activism fatigue that can settle and a sense of powerlessness because you see something that is so big that's been enduring for centuries. And then you're trying to understand where does hope lie in that ecosystem and what can be my contribution to accelerate that. And my parents made that a very accessible, normal baseline for me, what I didn't mm -hmm. feel debilitated by what I knew. It started with that. And then, you know, I ended up working in different organizations, nonprofit, activistic groups, collectives, um, purpose-driven organizations, corporate for 15 years. So for 15 years, I had the duality of corporate and activism. Mm -hmm. And what that revealed was that people that would be career activists or professional activists would understand on some level how to impact, but not how to monetize. So the means for us to achieve freedom in a sustainable way could never be fully materialized because that ecosystem didn't understand how to make money in a way that we can afford the time to be free. Mm -hmm. And that created an environment where I noticed that a lot of activists that I would encounter in those circles were intellectual activists. And so they would speak at the level of awareness, but not truly at the level of transformation. They would use vocabulary and language theories that are extremely alienating to the people on the ground that are part of the communities that they claim that they were serving. So there was already a big disconnect there. Like they were replicating systems within their efforts that contradicted you know, their ability to truly be impactful and transformative. On the flip side, in corporate, I saw people that understood how to make money, but not how to impact. 
And also this embedded notion that the only way to make money, especially in the West, is to be a capitalist or to use, you know, similar means of oppression and exploitation. Mm -hmm. And on the flip side, too, in those activistic circles that I, I was able to witness, observe and engage, they had this notion that money was not noble enough a pursuit, right? So is this thing where money was demonized and mistaken for capitalism. And it didn't sit right with me. And I was looking at those two people are having a conversation that should be unified. And they are misunderstanding both impact and profitability at the same time. And it led me to my quest into creating my own space because I realized it never felt right wherever I was. And that conversation was never fully had because a lot of people in leadership, even in those activistic circles, were extremely fragile. And because of those ideologies that they had anti-money or on the flip side, ideologies anti-activism, didn't want to commit. They didn't have the political will to change, to be transformational enough. So it just Mm -hmm. dawned on me that I had to be the change that I wanted to see normalized. And I couldn't rely on external entities, partners to make it happen on my behalf. So that's how I got into the DI space. And originally, the setup is you work a lot with corporate and it's to facilitate this change. But again, I, I bumped into a lot of systemic hurdles and in environments where you have a lot of Karens running the place and it was very performative. Mm-hmm. They wanted to look good, um, but they didn't want to do good. They were threatened by any other paradigm, even if it was better than what they had because it threatened the privilege um, that they had institutionalized. So then I, I decided to, okay, I need to adapt. So that took me to the last iteration of my business where I'm doing consulting, but also um, creating a school of low-cost online education. And the idea on both sides of the fence is for me to empower the most disenfranchised humans on earth to go from generational debt and poverty into multidirectional wealth and healing so that you have what I was talking to about in terms of impact and profit in the same space where me making money doesn't mean that I don't have integrity or that I'm selling out. And it also emphasizes how capitalism isn't the most profitable way to make money. And it's not the only way to make money, especially as an activist. And for me, it's to use money as an instrument to be able to afford true freedom. Because if all I can afford is struggle money, what quality of life can I have? And, you know, for me, activism isn't just awareness. It has to be transformational as well. So that's kind of the little spiel behind why I'm here and why I do what I do. Amazing. Thank you. I think there's so much to unpack there already. So we'll just, I think, begin by talking about the anti-money narrative that you mentioned um, that we do see is dominant in these activism, money activism sort of uh, spaces. Probably is because most of these activists are anti-capitalism. But then it's also mm-hmm. an issue, and I think we really need to problematize it, the relationships that people have built with money and capitalism and seeing them both as inextricably linked, right? You cannot pull them apart. And I think that in itself and that misconception is a reason why a lot of people or a lot of activists in these spaces are anti-money. So... Why is it so important that we problematize that? And why is it so important that we actually begin to understand the sort of history behind money and capitalism being connected so that we can actually outgrow those sort of um, narratives and mindsets so that we can build mm. better relationships 
with money? Yeah, um, you know, as you said, there is not a fine line. There is a world of differentiation between money and capitalism, mm-hmm. right? So money is a currency. Capitalism is a system. Yeah, and so many people are biased against and towards the only paradigm that they know. And when you take a really deep dive into history, and I need to give a shout out to Tamka Ha. So she runs Odonife History. You can follow her on Instagram, and it's this decolonial school of African Indigenous language and history. And she pulls the real history that even our communities don't know about because mm-hmm. all we're fed is this white history, white supremacy history year in and year out, especially in the West. Money existed long before capitalism did. And even in that construct, capitalism wasn't the original model of profitability. So I'm thinking of our ancestors you know, when we look at African indigeneity and indigeneity from all over the world, we had strong mechanisms that had money leverage as a currency that was anti-capitalistic, right? So for me, it starts with that. A lot of the struggle is people consume so much of what that they're fed uncritically that it feels as if capitalism is the only established and viable paradigm that determines how wealth can ever be achieved, but it's not true. So for me, a lot of my work has been about decentering because if all you consumed is that paradigm, your understanding of money is actually a bias, not a mm-hmm. fact. So when I consume work from people like Tam Kaha, it's so educational to understand that there are so many, not only alternative, but just different ways of being and of, of monetizing wealth. And that already gives you tools to deconstruct your own mechanism towards that. The other thing for me too is a lot of the activists that I'm going to call professional activists, career activists, or intellectual activists, they use big fancy words. Mm-hmm. They're extremely disconnected and disconnecting from the communities. So when we look at their audience and their platform is the most privileged minorities within those marginalized groups. So they're mostly college, university educated. You know, they mostly have a lot of the, they they can emulate a lot of the trappings of white privilege. It can be in the languages that they speak and that they don't speak. It is ultimately in their worldview, right? And it's ultimately in in the people that they engage that are also operating at the same level of standard of living, finances, Mm -hmm. thinking, and intellectualism, right? So when I look at those people, they can afford uh, a certain level of, you know, lack of profitability because they're sitting on a lot of material privileges. Um, But for me, I'm thinking true impact is the least likely person to be able to access privilege to be enabled into that space. So if you're talking to mostly university educated, college educated people in your community that, yes, are marginalized, but are also the closest to white privilege that you can find Mm -hmm. your conversation around money gets to be hypothetical because you're not coming at it from a perspective of survivorship. Right. Um, And I, so I put myself there. I also have the same level of privilege, but the question is, how is it that we collectively having so much privilege and specifically white privilege, how is it that we're using it to grant access to the least likely people in our communities Mm -hmm. to be able to rise to a standard of living where they can afford also not to care about money, right? So however much we struggle, we're not struggling enough in our lived experience at the level that money is the ultimate enabler of freedom. I can afford not to make more than what I have, 
and be comfortable, even in my definition of struggle enough. But I'm not the person who should be the representation of what transformation looks like. Um, and another layer to that is a lot of those activistic groups that you know I've been following and engaging and what have you in my work. I noticed that a lot of the funding money that we're given, we don't have a profit plan. We depend mm-hmm. on cycles of like government funding or other types of private external funding year after year after year after year. It's never part of those initiatives to project ourselves into a paradigm where we achieve true financial self-sufficiency, right? So there's a whole ecosystem that creates a model of activism where we're codependent on external funding for us to be viable enough to afford to struggle tomorrow, but not to be impactful today. So when I'm looking at it, I'm also thinking of, uh, my mom always talks about the Maslow pyramid of needs. You have your primary needs, food, shelter, and so on and so forth. And then you gravitate towards privilege. The kind of change that we're talking a lot about in those kind of activist circles does not factor in the first layer of that pyramid. Because yeah. again, it's people who have so much material privilege. They can't afford not to talk about money seriously because for them, it's a non-issue. Again, are those the people that should be leading the conversation? So all those layers put together, they make it very obvious that without money that is managed and grown into wealth multi-generationally, we're just recreating the same cycles. Every time you have a bit more privilege, less impact, uh, but we never have financial freedom. And so money in the sense is a thing that creates stability enough in our projects, in our organizations, and all the work that we do that um, we, the baseline of what we do isn't starting at the level of survivorship, that we can afford to not have to worry about money all the time. Now we can be focused on not being reactive to what's going on, but to be proactive and to build something as opposed to always trying to adapt to a new crisis, for example, and end up doing a lot of relief work. Yeah. So that's the way to have deconstructed the need for it. The question now is how do we find a way to create money that isn't capitalistic. That's the next step. But first it was, we need to acknowledge that money is the baseline of how we afford to be sustainable in what we do, that we get to do it long-term and that we get to do it at the highest level of efficiency as well. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think just picking out the really beautiful thing you've said, that money is essential for us to outgrow the survival mode and actually go into the thriving and the living right that a lot of people just will never get to do in their entire lifetime and to then propose that money is is disruptive it's not a way for us to outgrow those survival sort of environments is really unfair for people that do not have those options and i think that's just so so important I've personally have seen people have really unhealthy relationships uh, with money, especially generational wealth. It's just something that I've Mm -hmm. seen people completely get destroyed in because they feel that they have this amount of wealth, this amount of surplus money that they can use. And and oftentimes they're not using it in ways that help themselves, but also the wider community and other people as well. So I would actually love to hear your feelings around generational wealth in particular and so when families they have that surplus of money and they decide they want to invest it into their families and future generations which is an amazing thing and as you said that really does help in terms of long-term resilience and it's a it's amazing thing to think about future generations and a lot of people haven't been able to build those healthy relationships with money first of all 
So then, of course, when you're talking about generational wealth or you're talking about having this surplus of money, this overflow, they don't know how to build those meaningful relationships with that. Mm -hmm. So I just love to hear your opinion around that. Exactly. And I think, you know, when we talk about multi-generational wealth, a lot of folks are going to have this trust fund baby stereotype (laughs) in their minds, right? Which exists for a reason. And I Mm -hmm. think it's because we haven't been properly educated to know how to have privilege without entitlement. And privilege is demonized a lot in the conversations that we're having because the model for privilege is white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And again, it's about if all you have, if, if the only reference you have is, is what you're fed and you, you're led to believe that that bias is a fact, that's how you have a limitation in the face of a lot of possibilities. So as you said, is it, it is possible to have privilege without being entitled and being the most empowered activist human that, you know, it is possible. Actually, a lot of leaders to the movements that we referred to they had dire circumstances and privilege. And people think that that's a dichotomy that can exist. They were extremely innovative thought leaders that also didn't have a lot of material means, but just enough to be able to have space in their lives to you know, self-generate a lot of those reflections that we benefit from today, right? Mm-hmm. So when I'm yeah. looking at multi-generational wealth, it's again this thing. When I removed capitalism and white privilege as a reference for how money gets to be normalized at a multi-generational level, we have so many options. And, and part of it for me is, again, always digging back to the ancestors, to the history that we don't have access to, that's erased, that's contaminated, that is appropriated as well. But I'm thinking about how in different Indigenous cultures, where I'm, I'm from here, we you know, talk about um, how impact can be qualified as what happened seven generations down the road, which is very different from what I just said from a lot of activistic circle where it's all about relief. It's about being reactive to a crisis, but Mm -hmm. you don't have the stamina or the means to afford to look ahead, right? So I think it goes back to education. Is it possible? And my answer is always yes, but it's a kind of question I ask folks all the time is, is it, is it possible to raise children with immense levels of privileges, but also immense levels of social responsibility. And that part of the education that I get fascinated with, which is part of my mission, is to show them how do you use your privilege for maximum impact? Not for good. Good is elusive and good can be misinterpreted, but like maximum impact. How is the fact that you were born into the unique set of circumstances that you have, that you had access to quality access to opportunities, high-level education, shelter, and all those things. How is that a benefit, a necessary benefit to the cause, to the resistance, to the mission? And, and I think that's the part of conversation that we're missing. When we don't raise our children's children's children to understand how to leverage privilege for activism, privilege for impact, privilege for social transformation, the more they have, the more they disrespect. The more mm-hmm. they have, the more they squander. But again, that is only applicable when we're using capitalism as a model, right? But again, as I said, there are so many other models out there, and it's a matter of leaning into that. So for me, it's part of the work that I initiated with myself and with my own family is to look at the fact that I'm able to go to university, I have access to all those things. So how is my community all the better for it? That's one part. And the other part is how to make sure that we don't become this individual success story, mm-hmm. like the one yeah. Barack Obama, the one Oprah that we have, right? So I think it's part of educating 
ourselves in our communities who are walking into generational wealth to understand where that money comes from, the sacrifices, the hardship, and more importantly, today, how are you uniquely positioned and regards to the ancestors and the ones that are to come seven generations down from today, how are you uniquely positioned to use your privilege for level of impact that's going to amplify the multi-generational riches that we have today? How is the fact that you had privilege a gift to the next seven generations, mm-hmm. right? And for me, it's all about thinking about operational efficiency, because even if you have a lot, doesn't mean that you should use most of it to create impact. I'm always thinking about minimalism. So even when you have more, still think and act like a very strong minimalist and think about operational efficiency, aka how do I create the most with the least? When you are inhabited by those kind of motos, the only thing that you can do is to amplify what they already came before, but you're not dependent on it to survive or thrive, right? And it's always about passing it forward and to make sure as well that within that paradigm, you find the least privileged person in your room in your ecosystem, in your family, in your network, in your community, and you show them how to elevate themselves to a standard of wealth when where you both are equal to one another so that your wealth accelerates and catalyzes other, you know, multi-directional wealth creations for other. And at the same time that you're amplifying the baseline of what you already had. Um, and it's also talking about purpose. When mm-hmm. we're looking at purpose-driven individuals, they're not going to be the ones to squander anything, right? Because they don't take upon themselves what came before as their own, you know, um, at their own belonging, but it's truly about, sure, I came into this, but this isn't truly mine. I want to build my own thing. So to have a strong sense of self, to yeah. have that pride, to not just feel entitled, exactly as I was talking before, you can have privilege without being entitled, without feeling entitled in regards to what your parents or ancestors created before. Right. So I think it's all those different mechanisms that are embedded in education. And then the mechanics of it is to instill a strong sense of operational efficiency. How do you create the most with the least? That let's say you have a million, but you know how to generate, you know, a million dollar business off of a $100 budget. We can replicate that on a scale where you can create so much wealth for your community without needing to even use more than 10% of, you know, the, the disposable income that you had. So I think it's the conflation of all those things that empower us to do better than this, the model of the trust fund baby, that people think that's the epitome of privilege and generational wealth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And whilst you were talking, I was just thinking about the difference between capitalism and indigenous economic paradigms. And I think one of the biggest thing that I can see, the the biggest difference I can see is one has a mindset of abundance and the other has a mindset of scarcity. Capitalism is all about creating that culture of scarcity, right? You don't have enough, so you need to do more to get more. Whereas abundance is like, we have a lot here already that we can work with and we can get more, but we have to just work from what we have right now. And that is not an individual thing, right? It's not individualistic Mm -hmm. in that way it is community centric and I think that's was just really special when you were talking about all of this it just made me think about how a lot of us have internalized that sort of culture and that mindset of you know we don't have enough so the only way we can Mm -hmm. get more is through exploitation through profit-centric models that are very individualistic 
right? They don't have, again, like you've mentioned, profit is a good thing and having that surplus is a good thing, but it's just all about how we generate that profit, right? And how we generate that surplus. Are we doing it through community and through and making sure that we have that maximum impact, as you've mentioned, or are we just doing it for ourselves and for our families and, you know, that sort of small world that we've created for ourselves, which is not connected to the other worlds around us. So I think that's super important just to have that mentality of, yes, everything here, we have an abundant world. We just need to be able to be resourceful and mm-hmm. really just focusing on the equity side of things as well, seeing who does does not have the access to resources because of the systems that we're living in. Yeah. And as we were talking to, I was thinking within that construct of scarcity versus abundance, privilege demands that for you to be considered to have more, you need to make sure that everybody else has less. Mm-hmm. And what I came across in a lot of my work with different corporations and what have you is that they needed privilege to exist like that. Yeah. Even if with equity, DI and all of that, the paradigm that I was proposing, the premise of it is the minute the most disenfranchised groups in the group have more, everybody's station and condition is elevated. They didn't like a notion of abundance that was truly universal. They want to make sure that they're the only ones who get to experience abundance, right? So they would much rather even themselves have less if it guarantees that I can have more. Mm -hmm. And that's also something that comes from a lot of those circles. And that's why it corrupts the minds of a lot of activists uh, and purpose-driven folks, because they feel like when you use words like privilege, it's a trigger word for me, because automatically I'm populating that definition with what a white supremacist would have said or a capitalist. And again, it's not like those are the only two, you know, groups out there that get to have a say or that the, um, you know, that they are the authoritative voices of what privilege should and could be. But yeah, to the point of which you said, there's definitely this notion of abundance for me. Also, in my ethos, being a minimalist, my definition of abundance is also very different, but I I need very little to have a lot. And with that, it means that my notion of having a surplus of an overflow, it's already expended. And it's not about me, it's in benefit of more than myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think... A good way to sort of see or envision how we can put this into practice would be if you could explain a sort of framework they use in your work. Mm -hmm. So again, linking back to ancestral work, it is about looking back at what our ancestors done and what they, what the right things that they done that we perhaps couldn't carry forward, or at least the people in power were not able to carry that forward uh, for particular reasons. And of course, they are mostly profit driven. So yeah, if you just like to map out a sort of framework that you use um, that is anti-capitalist, but again, that allows us to build those healthy relationships with money. I think that would be an amazing way to sort of like envision that. Yeah, thank you for asking. I think it's a good way to lend this all, but um, yeah, I'll definitely share about my business model and it's always evolving, right? Yeah. Um, so for me, for example, I decided um, to focus on low-cost online education. So already you can see embedded in that is the knowing that accessibility also goes through money. And if I have a certain price point, then I'm just diminishing accessibility. So that's one part of it. It being online, I don't need a brick and mortar school, which would be restrictive in access, but also requires so much more investment capital. And, and then beyond that, I'm currently doing the course development, but the idea is to have a course that is very short, but very high impact. So I'm even challenging myself even more that I don't have any fluff. 
and any theory or language that's not accessible and really focus on empath. So everything that I'm sharing needs to be wired for empath. So if I were to be me from 10 years ago, when I didn't have the level of education, access or privilege, would I still be able to go through the steps that I'm proposing, get to the outcome that I am, you know, delivering to my community and be able to basically be better off for it. And also for me, it's important that in my programs, money is a big part of what I'm help creating for my people. So making sure that I have a tangible material outcome that he can leverage to create and enhance their own life conditions. The other thing is to make sure that I make myself quickly obsolete in the work. So that's one of my coaches used to say, Mary Forleo, that, you know, a good coach is someone who makes themselves quickly obsolete. Too much of the work that's happening right there is dependent on the people being enough in a condition of survivorship or struggle that they will be Mm -hmm. there the next day asking for a version of the same thing. That's not what I want. So I'm designing a three-week course so that it's easy to do. The videos, uh, I put a time limit that it needs to be between five to 10 minutes, not even more than that. So it's really about impact and value. I use a model that I call the show and tell. So instead of sitting and talking at my community and telling them what to do at a very highly theoretical level. I just show them something because we say an image is, you know, pictures were uh, a thousand words. So that's the whole message, the whole structure that I use as a framework, because this way I don't even need to talk. They already get it and they have a viable working example. And then I Mm -hmm. give them a lot of done for you templates so that I want you to understand it enough that you're comfortable using it, but then I give you everything you need and all you have to do is personalize it. So for me, it's been really thought from the framework that I was sharing with you of operational efficiency. How can I take the least to create the most? How can a 10-minute video with maybe one or two PDF that have to be very short, be the equivalent, you know, can be better than a six-figure college or university degree that they've had to be able to achieve the same outcome? And then I look at the price point, bringing it down and giving them a lot of payment options that are flexible so that they can afford it in more than one ways. And making sure that every single thing that I do, it's tested. I tested, tested with my communities and making sure, is this helping my community on two fronts, the healing and the wealth creation, both at multi-durational level? If the answer is no, I need to go back and I need to, to make it better, right? So that's one of it for me. So it's the model of even the product or the service itself. It's really geared for them in a way where if you had nothing, could you still be able to do it? And I've thought about this in terms of, different communities that I serve that I know, you know, they don't have computers, but they may have a cell, could be a bit outdated. And would they be able to still do the course there? Would they still Mm -hmm. be able to understand it there? So right from the beginning, as you start with the end in mind, because it's easy to get caught up in shiny object syndrome once you get started. And because you're the only one doing this version of the work, you cannot rely on, you know, what you're seeing out there. So that's a part of it. The other part is, even with my business model, right, I, I offer free online education. So a lot of my content you can find for free. Then I added this layers of twice a month. You know, I'm going live to my community to interact with them, ask questions, and I give free giveaways. And those giveaways, again, it's always about accessibility and impact. And I have a handful of resources that are incredible and they're very accessible. So I'm giving away those, those books. Could be in Kindle format, can be like in a paperback or hardcover, depending on where they are. But it's a kind of book that it's so simple in language. It's so accessible and it's really transformational. And I don't know a lot of books like that. So I'm thinking of James Clear, Atomic Habits, you know, so the habits that help you change your life. 
for the better. So I'm always thinking about impact, efficiency, and accessibility. I don't want you to have to sit with this for ages to be able to get a modicum of change. I want it to be the opposite. With the less amount of time and effort, how can you get the most out of it that's going to last you? And then get you to a place where you have enough privilege that you can afford to work less, to be able to dedicate yourself to your healing, to your passion, to what makes your soul happy, and then have space to be able to replicate that possibility for other people that you know, others that you don't know, but that we're not supposed to have access to what you help them have access to. So those are all different mechanisms, you know, that I'm using. And one of the other steps is to be able to share that in my other languages. So mm-hmm. to share it in my Afro-Indigenous language. So I'm just going at it in stages because it's me right now doing all the things, but the vision is there and the plan is very clear. And to always test every single thing that I do against, is it accessible? Is it truly meant for the most disenfranchised human you can meet or think of? And is it truly impactful? Once they have access to what you want to give them access to, are they empowered to change their circumstances at the level of healing and wealth at a multi-generational level? So, so beautiful. And I'm really, really happy to hear the work you're doing and see how multi-layered it is to the point where you're thinking about, okay, if someone has a phone so they don't have a laptop or a computer to use, can they see those visuals that are part of the course? Can they actually read it and understand it using that device? I think that's just so amazing. And a lot of people don't even go to that level, right? They don't think about the ways that people live and if it's accessible enough, right? The product that they're providing, is it accessible and the service that they're providing? That's just really, really beautiful. And just sort of linking back or going a bit back to what you mentioned about language. I think because a lot of these courses and products and services are, of course, English-based, right? They use the language of English. English in itself can pose so many different barriers for people. And it's not just about understanding English or actually being able to speak it and read it and be literate in it. I think it's more about the sort of framework that sometimes English uses, right? The language framework. So I am Indian and both my parents are Indian and just using the example of Hindi as a language, I just feel as if that framework Hindi is using is not Mm -hmm. exclusionary. I think it feels just so accessible to everyone. I sometimes understand, so let's say if my parents are like, oh, okay, what is this complicated word? What does that mean? And I'm like, well, Mm -hmm. I don't know how to break it down for you. But then if I do find an equivalent Mm -hmm. in Hindi, for example, I just realize how easy it is to break down that concept and a lot of these non-English languages just one word can hold so much meaning in that one word and explain the entire context and um, the concept to people right and I think that's just so beautiful not I think relying on the framework the language framework of English and providing these different options for people is just so powerful yeah I think In that way, the framework that English uses has a lot to learn from other languages that don't use that framework. And and that's been eye-opening for me in terms of accessibility and understanding that the language I'm using, it probably is not going to resonate with a lot of people Mm -hmm. because of, I guess, the history of that language, right, of English and and the privileges Mm -hmm. around that that people have sort of weaponized along the way. To your point, for sure, language is a big piece of this, and it's so layered. Um, And a lot of people are misled into thinking that 
you using a language as an objective choice. Yeah. Because there's language on one hand and then there's culture and then there's cultural conditioning, mm-hmm. right? And as you said, English has a lot more anti-colonial potential than what we're looking at because the main people that are instrumentalizing the language are people that come from a lot of colonial realities, yeah. right? So for me, part of my work is that. And, and on top of that, when I think of accessibility, for example, right now, it's making sure that my content, you have access to the audio, the video, and the transcript. Eventually, just out of you know my setup right now, I want to have closed captions and all of that. But so many ways to break it down. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, as you said, there's the language as in language ideology. A lot of people who use a certain version of English are also conditioned to think culturally in the same way. Yeah. And that's exactly the point that you're making, right? It's not so much the language, it's the cultural conditioning that surrounds it. And people are quick to make a lot of assumptions based on the type of English that you're speaking or things like that. And yeah. as you said, where accessibility gets uh, put aside is when people have so much privilege in the type of English that they use that they assume that this is the standard for all and they don't even seek to adapt or they don't even consider other cultures. And as you were saying for me too, even with my native Afro-Indigenous language like Haitian, I, I, I see differences, as you said, in culture and ideology. And that's also part of the accessibility, even for people in our communities that are bilingual, like say, there's yeah. always something else to be said for when you're able to have access to the best quality education ever in your language. And it shouldn't be that we would ha- we would need English as a gatekeeper to knowledge for us to truly access the best quality of information. It shouldn't be like that. But a lot of people don't even stop to question why mm-hmm. is it that I'm part of this English first environment and they presume that there is a superiority to both language and the culture without realizing that it's neither. It's just cultural conditioning. Yeah. So I'm just actually thinking about the conversation we had before this episode, a bit about cancel culture within activism and working with the oppressor or working to de-radicalize someone that takes on the role of of the oppressor. I think that is really, really essential way that we can actually stop English gatekeeping this knowledge. So again, like you said, English in itself is not the problem here. It's just the sort of cultural conditioning that we are that we have internalized and um, that has been weaponized. So that English is is this big language that you know everyone needs to know. It's a universal language now, and to gain access to that knowledge, you do need certain qualifications. Now that's how that's how we've presented it, and instead working with people who have been um, using these oppressive sort of practices. To transform that model is mm-hmm. a part of transformation work. So yeah, I just I'd love to hear, and I think the audience would love to hear a bit about that and what that really means for you, because it isn't just about you know sort of separating um, the oppressed and you know the oppressors, mm-hmm. rather it's about yeah. bridging that gap so that we can all okay. work towards transforming these models. Like there are so many things and I'm glad that you brought this up from a previous conversation. But for one thing, you know, I look at oppression and racism as systemic and they exist on a continuum. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the reasons why people from my very own communities were telling me that I wasn't black enough is because I've internalized a white supremacist model to define blackness. They didn't realize it. So a lot of the gatekeepers 
and different communities of color and different marginalized groups, they're actually doing the job of the white supremacists before they even get to come into our world. Right. And in the same way that white people will be telling me why I was black or not black enough, they're using the same model. So to the point is we're all using the same continuum of oppression. There's a part where it becomes internalized and it's a part where it's systemically enforced, but from an external gaze. Right. So as you said, then for me, it's a lot of deconstructing for people. What do you mean by blackness? Mm -hmm. What do you mean by whiteness? What do you mean by queerness? And then they realize that a lot of their definitions are problematic because they come from the system and they don't really know what they think because from a young age, they've been indoctrinated into that level of thinking, right? So um, for me, a lot of my work is just to have that awareness piece. It also makes us see we're closer than we think in the good and in the bad because the worst definitions of Blackness that I've heard from my community, I've also heard from white supremacists outside of my community. So it's a way that we're closer than we think on all on all levels, right? Yeah. Um, also at the level that I was discussing that, sure, you can have privilege, but there are so many more ways that you could have more freedom for yourself and more profitability on both sides of the coin. But it's just because, again, if we presume that white supremacy capitalism is the only working viable model for wealth creation, then that's how we all, you know, we all lose in the end. To the point that you were making around de-radicalization. So, I was sharing with you in this conversation prior that um, when I, I look at the, a lot of the work that different activists would be doing, I notice that there's this big limitation. Like a lot of the work would be, and there's a time and a place for it, but now that it becomes a dominant narrative where they're preaching to the choir of already converted activists, right? So they all use the same language. They all have the same lived experiences and it develops a sense of fragility in the community if that's the only type of discourse that you're having. Mm -hmm. The level of impact, relevance, and transformation that you can have as a leader is when you're reaching somebody who is the direct opposite of who you were supposed to be engaging with, right? So for me, as somebody who works in anti-oppression, I can gauge the level of, of impact that my work has on two fronts. How the most disenfranchised person in my community or in the community that I'm calling to serve is empowered by my work but also how somebody who, let's say I'm doing anti-oppression, how a white supremacist can access my work at a different end of that spectrum and be de-radicalized into becoming an ally. Most of the conversations that I'm hearing and seeing and that are mainstream are not about that. Yeah. And I'm thinking of Brene Brown who was saying that shame is not a tool of social transformation. It's cool to call out and in all the Karens in the room, that's cool. How is that helping bridge the gap though? She's still going to be a Karen tomorrow. Your mm -hmm. interaction probably radicalized her more into owning up to her Karen identity than it did to create an alternative model of reference for her. And the measure of your impact is if I need to look like you a lot for me to be impacted by your work, you're not transformational. So for me, it's what is your ability to speak to the person was conditioned to hate you, was conditioned to not relate to you, how great is your ability to reach that human heart? Yeah. And it's layered. It doesn't mean that every day you need to be doing this, but if no, zero percent of your work is attached to your ability to de-radicalize the person who was created in the system to disrupt and dismantle your work, then you're never going to be sustainable, but you're also never going to be transformational because there cannot be a segregation and a revolution. If mm -hmm. I need to be like you, it's a form of segregation that you're imposing on your work. Yeah. Right? So Black leadership shouldn't just be 
for like the black community. That's the level of limitation that we have on what we can do. And some can be said about so many other minority groups, right? So my point around de-radicalization is especially true for the leadership of activism, that what percentage of your work is dedicated to de-radicalizing the person who was indoctrinated systemically to hate, dismantle, and interrupt her work? If you're speaking, not if it's 0%, you need to revise things. And can you be that leader? Should you be that leader? Doesn't have to be you, but it needs to be part of your leadership, right? And that's, again, a conversation that I'm seeing the same way that the conversation around money is not happening in those circles because being pro-generational wealth is being anti-capitalistic, Yeah. right? They don't look at it this way, but it's true because it means that we can afford to be there tomorrow, not on the struggle bus, but at the level of impact. Yeah, that's amazing. I like how you said that the knowledge that sort of black activists are providing are not just for black people who are not able to build this generational wealth. It is that knowledge is supposed to sort of disseminate and spread out into other communities that are, are not just black. And I'm just remembering one amazing thing that this activist called Mina Salami said, who talks about sensuous knowledge, which is a bit, a bit different, but she is talking about how knowledge in itself is quite promiscuous and mm-hmm. how it is not supposed to stay in one community and neither is it supposed to just mm-hmm. be within a certain group of leaders. You know, So she mm-hmm. is talking about black knowledge as well and she's talking about how that is supposed to spread out that this is a framework of black feminism, but that framework is for everyone and regardless of race and regardless of financial background, et cetera. So that just, that phrase kind of just popped up in my mind when you mentioned that. And I think that's just so powerful to see knowledge as fluid. It's not just contained in one community and in one place yeah. and that everyone has access to it. I think that is just so important. And that's something that you've been talking about, sort of money, education being Mm -hmm. high impact and accessible so that this knowledge can flow out to different spaces and be taken up in different, in different ways. Exactly. And for me, I I call it like the impossible allies framework. So it's the the people that are my allies and are the people who should have been my allies. Mm -hmm. Because if I'm seeing what what, what should have happened, I'm still replicating the system. The system is very happy when it says black activists that only engage black people. Because the system knows that's not going to get anything done. And you're actually playing into their hands. The system is threatened when Black activists and Black leaders are able to reach across any color line. And they do it on purpose. And it's the cornerstone of how their operations as as leaders, you know, gets gets integrated over time. So for me, it's also the same. Are you the kind of leaders that make supremacy uncomfortable? If you're only Mm -hmm. talking to people like you, yo, supremacy actually is going to validate you. Because they you know your work has no impact. It's people that already agreed with you. They're not even, you know, even for them, the level of change, like the before and after picture of when they met you is going to be pretty much the same, right? Yeah. And back to your analogy, I was thinking about how when, and I take the example of Black people, but it's applicable to so many other communities. When we have a movie with majorly Black uh, actors, they call it a Black movie. But when it's majorly white people, it's just a movie. Mm-hmm. So it means that the audience is going to be all black people majorly, but when it's a white movie, all races are expected and conditioned to show up. So, so for me, when I think of, you know, activism, do you want your activism to be so that, you know, uh, you're going to act like a black movie where only people from 1% of the conversation are turning up 
Or do you want to have a level of activism or impact making where everybody comes in because we're able to speak to them at a level of transformation where they get to be de-radicalized at the level that they needed to be, right? I don't want to be put in a box. I don't want to be part of segregation in my work. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's multi-layered, but that's how you can truly have systemic change and impact. Amazing. Thank you so much for this conversation. So literally my body is just like vibrating with the knowledge and the energy that we've shared here today. It's, it's amazing. And it's a conversation that is truly needed in this space. Also for me personally, um, as someone who I understand the privilege that I have, as you said, but at the same time, you know, I don't have that support of generational wealth, for example. And so the sort of negative connotations around that that have been sort of internalized within me and my family and also people similar of similar sort of financial backgrounds to me. Yeah, I just realized that my relationship with money, it, it mm. wasn't it wasn't great. And I just didn't understand how we can still work with money, but just shift to do a paradigm that is not reproducing these sort of oppressive practices and norms Mm -hmm. so this conversation in itself was just medicine for me and I really (laughs) really hope that the listeners feel the same so thank you so much for coming into this space and you're always welcome back because I feel like this was sort of like an introduction into decolonizing our relationship with money and sort of activism within the space in itself I think there's just so much here to talk about and unpack and deconstruct so you are always welcome to come back onto the podcast and just connect with us again I love thank it. you and no, I really appreciate it thank you thank you for listening to the mindful of everything podcast subscribe to the podcast and follow the show on Instagram and Facebook don't forget to give a rating on iTunes so that the show can reach other wonderful humans like you who also enjoy engaging in conversations held in this space connect with Chess on Instagram at ChesslinePP and visit mindfuloveverything.com for full episode resources, including signing up to Chess's newsletter.